0: Welcome to the Trinity Radio Podcast. This podcast has a video component found at youtube.com/braxton Hunter. This means you might miss some visual aspects of the show, but it shouldn't have a serious negative effect. We'd love it if you'd run over to the YouTube channel real quick and subscribe. And if you enjoy this content, do us a favor. Take a moment to give us a 5star review on iTunes and mention a couple of things you like about the podcast. If you really appreciate the show, you can help make it better and get extra content for as little as a dollar a month at patreon.com trinityradio trinity radio. Enjoy the show. Welcome to Trinity Radio. You found the channel that loves atheists. I'm Braxton Hunter, and today we're going to take a look at a video answering the que- where a bunch of atheists are answering the question of what it would take to convince them uh, that God exists or that Christianity is true. Now, you don't have to have seen any of the other videos on our channel or in this series to benefit from this, but this is in a series Um, that began with a video I made asking 10 questions of atheists. And probably two dozen now uh, channels have responded to uh, that list of 10 questions. And so what I've been doing is going through in each one with its own unique video and uh, responding to what atheists have said to these 10 questions. So this is uh, video number seven, and there's going to be 10. And today we're answering that question of what would convince you. Uh, Mostly these are atheists today. I think there is one deist. And if I'm wrong about that, then please forgive me me. But we're going to see what they have to say in response. Now, I I think this is actually a pretty interesting one because I'm genuinely wanting to know the answers that people give. I know what many atheists say in response to these kinds of questions, but I thought I might get something unique or that I've never heard before. And so for that reason, I thought it was important to uh, to ask them and to analyze them. Now, um, I'm asking this in a spirit of um, a genuine uh, humility and, and and looking to see what people have to say. And I actually have heard at least a couple of unique things here in, this, in these questions, answers to this question today, but this is an important one. And the reason is, let me give you a little bit of background. When you ask someone what it would take for them to believe, it's kind of an interesting issue because one of the most, in my opinion, persuasive arguments for atheism that many atheists will bring is what is known as the divine hiddenness problem. They'll frame an argument from divine hiddenness. And divine hiddenness is supposed to say something like, look, if we have non-hostile uh, atheists here, people who it's not that they just don't want to believe, but they would believe if they were given good reason to believe. Well, then why doesn't God make his existence more apparent? And so when we get, and we have answers to that. Many of us who are Christians obviously don't think that God has hidden in exactly the sense that uh, atheists think it. I mean, I get that why doesn't God show up on the White House lawn or in Jerusalem or something once every couple of years just to remind everyone that he exists and do some miracles or something like that. But when you look at the arguments that we give for God's existence and for Christianity, and uh, at least the theistic arguments, the arguments for God's existence— point to things that everyone has access to, like um, thinking about the beginning of the universe and why is there something rather than nothing, or the design that's in the universe, or uh, the morality that we seem to have, these kinds of things. The the accessibility that we have to those things leads many of us to think it's not hidden. He hasn't hidden himself. This is why we think Paul says uh, in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, the invisible things of God, his eternal power and divine nature are clearly seen through what has been made so that they are without excuse. So, Uh, But the answers that people will give will inform what we think about a challenge like that, Um, because we'll find out what really would God have to do. It wouldn't just be showing up. What would God have to do in order for you to be convinced that God exists and or that Christianity is true. So it's a pretty interesting one. So we're going to jump in here and it's going to allow us to talk about several interesting things, I think. All right, let's begin with a channel called Due Diligence, and let's see what he has to say. And it'll begin with my posing of the question. I just clipped it from his video to make it easy in one clip. So you'll hear my question and then Due Diligence. Here we go. Most atheists I've met humbly admit that they don't think they can have absolute certainty about much of anything, but what they want from the Christian is a demonstration that God exists or that Christianity is true. Well, when we offer the reasons to believe that we do have, those are typically deemed not good enough. So what sort of evidence, if any, would be enough to convince you? Do you know?
1: The easiest answer here is the one that Matt DeLauw gives. I have no idea, but if God exists and is omniscient, he would surely know and... If he's omnipotent, he'd be able to produce that evidence. Now, seeing as I don't believe, I can comfortably say that God hasn't provided this piece of evidence, which means that an omniscient omnipotent God either doesn't exist or he doesn't want me to know he exists, and either way, it's not my problem. But I think it's worth noting that I think this question is also a bit misleading. You're asking what would convince me of this statement. But this is actually not just one statement. Let's say that you managed to convince me that the universe had a creator, that there is a morally perfect being, and that Christ was resurrected after dying on the cross. You still didn't convince me that the creator and the morally perfect being are one of the same, or that Jesus had anything to do with either of them. You're not actually promoting a God claim, you're promoting God claims. And proving one doesn't necessarily prove another. If you want to discuss what it would take to convince me that God exists, it's up to you to first define the minimum requirements for a belief to be considered belief in God. If I believe in a morally bankrupt evil creator of the universe, would you say that I believe in God? If I believe in a morally perfect creator who no longer exists, does that meet the requirements? What about a morally perfect father of Jesus of Nazareth, who had nothing to do with the creation of the universe? Do you see the problem here? Do you see how many added assumptions you bring into this discussion?
0: (laughs) All right, so let's uh, start responding here to due diligence. Now, first of all, uh, he brings the Dillahunty answer. This was bound to come up. And by the way, there were Many more videos I could have clipped and put in here. In fact, there may be some others in this list who give this same answer. It's become a very popular answer to this question. The idea that I don't know what it would take to convince me, so I can't tell you, but... Uh, if God exists and he's omniscient, he would know what it would take to convince me. And so either he doesn't exist or he doesn't care to do that for me. So it's not my problem and it's on him. Now that sounds okay. I mean, that, sound, that has a little bit of a, a reasonable ring to it. Actually, we're going to see a couple of atheists in this video who have a problem with that answer that we're going to get to uh, toward the end. But first, I want to just say this. This presumes that you have an epistemology that would allow for uh, that kind of an answer. This presumes that, um, that, that, that something would convince you on your epistemology. Now, first, let me just table that for a second and say, um, I, I'm not saying that any of these people in this list are being disingenuous, but we hear a lot of different answers about what would lead them to believe. And uh, they're, they're pretty, you know, uh, they, they would have, they're, they're pretty um, direct, specific, um, incredible. And uh, the thing about it that I want to point out is, I do kind of think that there are probably less things than that that would convince them. So I take what these people to mean is what should, in their opinion, what should uh convince them that this is true, not what actually would, but I could be wrong about that. But here's the problem with this. Um, if they're, So what Dillahunty does, and this is going to come up again in the next uh, respondent, but what Dillahunty does, and I don't know whether this is intentional or whether it's just something that he finds himself doing. Uh, I certainly don't think it's intentional on the part of the people that echo him with this, but when he says something like, I don't know, when he says something like, I want a demonstration, and this is what I was getting at in the question. When he says something like, I want a demonstration that this God exists or that Christianity is true. Um, But then he doesn't actually give us a benchmark to shoot for. Like, if we gave you this, would you be convinced? As long as he doesn't give us that benchmark, then whatever we give, he can just say, that's not good enough. That's not good enough. That doesn't convince me. That shouldn't convince you. No, 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 that's not convincing. Whereas if he gave us a benchmark, at least we would know what it would take to convince him so that if it was met, well, then he couldn't back out and say, well, that doesn't convince me because I did say that would convince me if it were given. We don't get that. On the other hand, when I bring up 100% certainty, well, actually, I'll hold that for the next respondent. But the problem is with Matt Dillahunty, it may be that the reason Matt can't give us an example of what it would take to convince him or due diligence to convince him is because they have constructed an epistemology such that there is nothing that they think should convince them or could convince them. That's why perhaps they can't give it to us. Now, I don't think that they would say that, but take Matt as an example, since I don't know about due diligence and since he did cite Matt as his reference for this. Uh, Matt Dillahunty is on record saying, in a debate with Matt Slick in 2015 that if someone parted an ocean in Jesus' name, that he wouldn't be convinced that something supernatural had happened. He said in a debate with uh, with um, Mike Lacona that if Mike's head were cut off and an hour later it was reattached without human involvement and, Matt and uh, Mike began to tell Matt about a conversation that Mike had just had in the afterlife with one of Matt's deceased friends that only Matt and that friend knew about that conversation. And Mike was able to tell about that. And there was no explanation for how he was dead, head not attached, reattached, and all of those kind of things that he, something like he couldn't conclude that that was something supernatural that had happened. If that's the level of skepticism that you're at, that is an unreasonable level of skepticism. And if a person holds that level of skepticism, number one, if you're out there and you're an atheist and you're considering these things or you're on the fence, then People like that who have that level of evidence should have, and if you could say, if you, here's the thing, if you could say that would convince me, if someone parting the ocean in Jesus' name would count as good evidence for me, here's what that means. Whether or not, the point is not whether those things have happened. The point is, if they would convince you if they did happen, then people's opinions like Matt Dillahunty and anyone who echoes this should have no bearing on what you consider to be good and bad evidence because they have unrealistic levels of of expectation for what should count as good evidence, and so with a person like Matt Dillahunty, who wouldn't believe in under those incredible circumstances, then uh, then it could well be, and I think we are within our rights to say something like, "It seems like you have constructed an epistemology such that realistically nothing could convince you." So, could God, if, God, if there's a God, does He know what it would take to convince me? it could be that what God knows about you is that you won't be convinced no matter what is done for you. That could be what God knows. It's not that there's something God isn't capable of doing. I mean, God could remove your free will and force you to believe, but if we're taking it that God wants you to freely choose Him and choose to accept Him and, and not force it on you, then it it may be that there's nothing that could be done, and that's what He knows. Uh, and that's the answer to due diligence is uh, thing as well. And I think that is so obviously uh, an acceptable response to this that I think atheists should stop using this. There's another uh, answer that's going to come at the end of this video from an atheist where that atheist says basically, look, we we all kind of say that that personal experience wouldn't be good enough, but when we say uh, God would know what that is and so he should give it to me, we're implying something like a personal experience it sounds like. And I hope I'm not miscommunicating that. I don't mean to. But uh, so that there's, there's all kinds of problems with that. The next thing that he says is... He says um, that I'm being misleading in this because I ask him what would convince him of this statement, like there's one statement. Uh, But it's actually not just one statement. He says, you're actually asking me about Christianity and God's existence and a number of other things. Well, I think all of those other things collapse into two basic questions. The question we have before us now is, did I ask you one question or did I ask two questions? Let's just see real quick. Is a demonstration that God exists or that Christianity is true. What was that? Let's see it again. Demonstration that God exists or that Christianity is true. So I actually wasn't misleading. I gave both of those options right from the jump. He goes on to say something like, okay, but, but, um, but, You know, how do I know that this creator God is the same as the perfect being? How do I know that that has anything to do with the resurrection of Jesus and all of that? Well, that would go under that second point. What would it take to convince you that Christianity is true? What would it take to convince you that God exists? What would it take to convince you that Christianity is true? Which also addresses the third thing that he brings up, which is, well, you have all these hidden assumptions. Like, for example, what if I believe that there was an evil God? What if I believe there was a God that did create the universe or a creator that made the universe but no longer exists? well in such a case um though that would be theism that would be to affirm that some god exists it wouldn't get you to christianity so i'm happy to know that there could be evidence well actually you didn't tell me this but there could be evidence that would lead you to believe in principle that god exists. Uh, but wouldn't necessarily get you to Christianity. That's why people like me offer two kinds of evidence. We argue for God's existence using the theistic arguments, and then we argue for the resurrection or in some other way, Jesus divinity, and we do that as well. So it's a two-step method, the classical Christian apologetics approach. But we actually got no answer. Understanding that, that means we got no answer to the question of what would it take to convince you that Christianity was true. And as far as whether God exists, what we got was, well, you prob- the assumption that I wouldn't count it- as a belief in God if he said the evil God or a God that created the universe but is dead now or or whatever else no that would be theism it just wouldn't be Christian theism now he did add one other one like what if uh, Joseph Jesus earthly father was morally perfect um, but didn't create the universe okay well that would not be theism okay so so I think that there was nothing there misleading I just think that the question was not fully heard or appreciated. All right, so we're gonna go on now to the next one, and that is Vagrant Sam, and this one's gonna be super interesting, I think, so let's move on to Vagrant Sam now.
2: For starters, I I think you're trying to conflate the idea that we can't know anything for certain, uh, the problem of solipsism, and by contrast, request for believers to give us 100% true philosophically, knowable, absolutely no way for it to be wrong um, demonstration of God, which I, I don't think that's really presenting the situation accurately. I, I, I don't think the majority of people that are asking with um, an open mind to the discussion for proof of God are asking for 100% absolute facts. So let, let's put it into context where like like take something that is considered a scientific fact such as evolution we believe evolution to be true based on the body of evidence but science can accept that if something comes up to prove something is incorrect about the current understanding of evolution it will change that so we don't know evolution as we see it today 100 percent is the exact fact of the world Uh, but we do have high level of confidence in the data that we've seen and the experiments and the predictions and all that sort of stuff. Asking believers to provide us with a similar level of assurance of the truth of their
0: claim um, doesn't seem unreasonable to me. because. We- okay, so let's uh, talk about this just for a moment, because what he says here is, uh, look, um, you seem to be, Braxton, you seem to be saying that what we atheists expect from you Christians is that you give us absolute 100% certainty, like Cartesian certainty. No, I, I, and I understand that you don't think you have that with evolution or anything else, because I agree with you. I don't think that Cartesian certainty is... Uh, something that can be had with most things, if not with anything. And so I, that's not what I'm asking. The point that I wanted to make clear in the question, and that's why these questions, and this guy didn't do this, but some people try to just answer these questions with like the standard typical atheist party line, and it won't work. I thought very carefully about these questions. The The, the issue is this is something that I think comes up with a lot of people. Um, and let's go back to due diligence and Matt Dillahunty. Matt Dillahunty is a person who says he doesn't think he can have Cartesian certainty about anything, even his own existence. Um, And I'm not here to argue that he's wrong about that. What I'm here to say is if you're saying, okay, I can't be requiring that you, the apologist, give me 100 percent certainty because we all agree. So that's way up here. We all agree that we can't get to that. Okay, so you don't have to give me that. It doesn't have to be absolute beyond the possibility of doubting certainty. Great. So where is it then on this spectrum? You agree it doesn't have to be certainty. You can't say that it has to give me certainty. and uh, But you do say it has to be a demonstration. Okay, what's that demonstration look like? Well, as long as we have this, this breadth here where you understand I can't give you certainty, but you won't tell me what that demonstration looks like, this creates a space, a safe space here, where no matter what you're provided with, because you haven't given me a clear answer, whatever is provided to you, you can just say that doesn't convince me. I'm not convinced. And that's one of the reasons why it appears to many people that Matt Dillahunty wins a lot of his debates when really all he did was just sit there and say, I'm not convinced in a very eloquent way. Not that he's not aware of the arguments, not that he doesn't provide uh, interesting feedback. It's just that um, that the benchmark becomes convincing Matt. That's how you win the debate is to convince Matt. Well, uh, I like uh, I go back to Mike Wingers' uh, quote that 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 I fell in love with. It was one of the first things I ever heard from Mike, where he said in that in his debate with Matt Dillahunty, he said, "My job is not to convince you. My job is to present convincing arguments. Your job is to be convinced by convincing arguments." something like that. That's absolutely right. But so long as you have this safe space where we all agree we can't get to Cartesian certainty about this, but I'm not going to tell you what a demonstration would look like to me. No matter what we would give you a bunch of evidence, nope, that doesn't count as a demonstration. Okay, how about all this evidence? Nope, that doesn't count either. Until you're clear about it, well then all you have to do to avoid ever having to believe or ever having to concede that there was a good case made is just to say, well, that doesn't convince me. Now again I don't know whether that's something that Matt thought through and created and uh, or not. I, I don't know. I can't speak to his motivations. I, I do know that there's a lot of atheist YouTubers who have latched on to that and echoed it from Matt, who I definitely don't think it's that's their reason for saying it. I think it seems to have an air of, of reasonability to them. But that's the major problem with it, and so it's a it's a really big problem. So no, I'm not saying what he took me to be saying that you, we Christians understand that you atheists are asking us to give you 100% certainty. Quite the opposite. I understand that you don't think you can have a hundred percent certainty, but also we're not told what a demonstration looks like to you. So there's this safe space where you can just say about anything that doesn't convince me. All right. Uh, let's move on to the next thing that he says. We're asking for them to bring us a philosophical truth. We're asking them to bring us a
2: physical probability <laughs> and i don't want to use probability either because again numbers don't really make sense uh if particularly if we're taking reproducibility um in a, a lab off the table as you sort of suggest to um as it's a bit of a non-starter which i mean once we can't use a claim to like once once we can't test it once we can't investigate it i mean how are you going to demonstrate something that you can't reproduce like you, you can't demonstrate a fact if you can't reproduce an outcome based on a prediction because that's no longer a fact um i i think this says more about the weakness of the evidence that christianity claims as evidence than it does all
0: right so uh let's let's go back to this that's pretty well it so it's so here's the thing uh, the thing about Um, experimental reproducibility. I did say in the video, I said, let's take experimental reproducibility off the table uh, because that's not always necessary with science. And this created a problem for a lot of people. It's not that there is no way to test a claim. In, say, the historical sciences, you can necessarily, uh, you can't necessarily reproduce an occurrence like in the lab with experimental reproduction in the way you would with, say, chemistry or something like that. So what you have to do with a With historical science, and I'm going to give you more on that in just a moment, is you have to form a hypothesis about what you think caused this particular event in the past. And then you have to do some abductive reasoning. You have to infer the best explanation. Now, there are controls for this so like what you want is you want to uh posit what is the best causal explanation for this what has causal adequacy and what we mean by this is this particular thing that we're positing as the explanation of the cause for a particular phenomenon has to have the ability to uh do that and it's nice if we can demonstrate that it was that this particular thing was there at a particular time when the event occurred so let's say for instance for example we found um, Uh, a layer of ash. Okay. In a, in a big area, like a huge area. And we want to try to explain what we think is the best explanation for this occurrence. So, uh, so we, we don't know exactly, but let's say we have a couple of competing hypotheses. So on the one hand, we could say, well, there was, um, uh, people were creating, uh, you know, Campfires all over this region. And so that left some dust everywhere or some ash everywhere. Another explanation is, well, no, actually there, there was a volcano that erupted and left this layer of ash. Okay, which of those is the best explanation? Well, in this particular region, it's not isolated instances of ash like what you'd have with a campfire. It's a, a thick layer of ash throughout the whole region. Okay, well, in that case, the volcano is the best explanation, and we can actually demonstrate, too, that the volcano was there during this particular period of time. Uh, so uh, the volcanic uh, eruption makes the, is the best explanation, so that's probably what it is. Also, another control for this is if we have some current example uh, that not only the cause is capable of producing something like this, but we have current examples of a cause of this sort causing a similar effect. So we do have volcanoes today and we do know from current examples that ash can be laid down after a volcanic eruption. So that then becomes a good. So this is testable in the sense that you connect it to things that, you know, have can can produce these sorts of causes today. The thing is, you can't recreate the volcanic explosion in all of its majesty in your lab. That'd be a pretty big lab or with the beginning of the universe. For instance, at one time, uh, the Big Bang hypothesis was a competing hypothesis with the steady state theory. And they both had ways of explaining things like the red shift and, uh, uh, the, you know, the balance of energy in the universe, all these kind of things they had, they both had explanations for all these things. And so they seemed to be, okay, these are, these are competing hypotheses, but whenever the background radiation wave was discovered, that was more consistent with the big bang because a cosmic event like that, and where you'd have a microwave background radiation wave that was felt throughout the universe, that seemed to be more, consistent with Big Bang cosmology than it was with the steady state theory. And so the Big Bang cosmology seemed to win out. So you have to do this abductive reasoning, this inference to the best explanation. But you, it's testable in the sense that you, you can look at what we have today as possible causes for things and you have to connect them to that in some way. Let me read to you a, a section on this from Stephen Meyer's signature in the cell which says, historical scientists use a common method of evaluating their theories in which they evaluate the relative explanatory power of an inference to determine determine its strength, plausibility, or likelihood. This meant that historical scientific theories, like other scientific theories, were testable, albeit by reference to distinctively distinctively historical criteria for determining what an explanation qualifies as best. Historical scientists test their theories against the explanatory power of their competitors and against our knowledge of the causal adequacy or causal powers of various entities. They make these assessments based upon our present knowledge of established causes and effects. Uh, cause and effect relationships. The criteria of causal adequacy and to a lesser extent causal existence developed by, uh, developed by Lyle and used by Darwin constitute critical experience-based tests of historical scientific theories, tests that can be used to discriminate the explanatory power and merit of competing hypotheses. Now listen to this. This is, the, this is what I want you to hear. Clearly, this method of testing scientific ideas is different from that used by experimental scientists who test their theories by making predictions about what will happen under controlled laboratory conditions. I'm going to read that again. Clearly, this method of of testing scientific ideas is different from that used by experimental scientists who test their theories by making predictions about what will happen under controlled laboratory conditions. Even so, historical scientists are not the only scientists to use it. Arguably, Watson and Crick use this method to test their ideas about the structure of DNA um, against competing models. And many scientists, theoretical physicists, biochemists, psychologists, astronomers, pathologists, medical diagnosticians, as well as historians, detectives, and thinking people everywhere use this method of reasoning every day to make sense of their experiences. That's from page 174 of the book. Now, the... The reason that this is important is when we're talking about something like God, well, yeah, God is not the sort of thing that you can put into a beaker or put into a lab and do experimental, uh, that kind of experimental uh, observation and and, and uh, testing on. But what you can do is what historical scientists do, at least in some cases, and certainly with a teleological argument or perhaps even with aspects of a good cosmological argument maybe even a contingency argument. And so what you would do with something like this is you would say, okay, let, let's just take uh, what Meyer's on about in his signature in the cell. So um, the design hypothesis. Now, whether you take that as seriously or not, it doesn't have to have anything to do with evolution or anything like that. We Let's talk about abiogenesis and uh, first life on earth. What we see in uh, these cells, what we see is this code, this DNA code that is replicated by the RNA that creates these protein molecules that then do out, go out and do these particular jobs. It's like a language system. It's like a code. It's um, it, it's, it very much is that way. I talked recently to a scientist who's also a Christian apologist, Jonathan McClatchy, who uh, confirmed, no, in the literature, we talk about it as a code, as a language system, that sort of thing. So, uh, what, so what you would say about that is, okay, we, we, we're not going back to reproduce that in, in, in its original situation. But what we can do is we can say, okay, what's the best explanation for a cause for this? Well, the only explanation that, uh, or I could say the best explanation, which is what you're looking for with abductive reasoning, is actually something we have today that we know is a cause of things, and that is a mind. Minds seem to generate information in a reliable and workable way. That's something that would make sense of a biogenesis, is a mind giving us this information. Um, And we, and again, we have this today. We know that this exists today. And so it makes sense of what we see with something like abiogenesis, but you can't put God into a beaker and and do, uh, you know, predictive experiments on God that way. So I think that that's an important thing to keep in mind when you're, when you're looking at, at these sorts of things. All right, let's move on. Now, this is interesting because here we get to, um, here we get to the deist, in the discussion. I think he's a deist, Mr. Brass. Let's see what he has to say. And I think it's hilarious. He replicated my set, at least as my set used to look. Um, And some of the features you'll see are still there.
3: I believe that God exists, but I'd
2: personally be convinced of Christianity in specific if I seen the risen Jesus and got to
0: feel his wounds. I find the Trinity to be absurd in many ways, but if someone could offer me a coherent argument for it, I'd be willing to consider Christianity. Overall, I think the question presupposes that we actually can control what we believe. I don't really think that is the case. Okay. So, uh, what do we, what do we see here? We see, uh, number one, he said, I'd want to feel Jesus' wounds. Okay. That would, so by the way, this particular respondent, I think actually gave us some answers that are, you know, in the realm of what we do as Christian apologists already. Now we can't show you, we can't give you Jesus' wounds to feel them. That's true. Um, but he actually backs that up by saying, you know, that's what I'd really like. And that would convince me. Okay, great. You answered the question. Another thing though, is he says, but a coherent explanation of the Trinity might, um, might, might put it on the table. In fact, let's get his words again. Exact.
1: I find the Trinity to be absurd in many ways, but
0: if someone could offer me a coherent argument for it, I'd be willing to consider Christianity overall. Okay, think- If he could get a coherent explanation of the Trinity, he'd be willing to accept, uh, consider Christianity. Yeah, so there are a lot of bad explanations of the Trinity that are out there. Um, a lot of actually um, explanations and analogies that if we take them seriously and literally, they result in some kind of a heresy. And it's difficult to talk about the Trinity for very long without landing in the realm of heresy anyway. But let's talk about a couple of things. First of all, the classic explanation of the Trinity is like a triangle. A triangle is three distinct points, but it it's one triangle, right? And each point is a part of the essence triangle. In the same way, the Trinity is not three persons who exist as one person or three gods who exist as one God. It's one God consisting of, or one God who exists as three persons. So you have, just like you have the three different points of the triangle, you have three different persons of the Trinity. Just like the points of the triangle share the the essence of triangle, the three persons of the Trinity share the essence God. There's a really old graphic of this that has the triangle with the lines going between the different points and everything explaining all of this. And it's actually pretty helpful. And I think it's a good, explanation what that shows is that there's nothing incoherent about it to to say that it's absurd i would think you would want to show something that that um is in some way incoherent about it uh, if you mean absurd in the strict way sometimes i use the term absurd in the more casual everyday colloquial language but um i don't think it's absurd i don't think it's incoherent i think it makes sense there's nothing contradictory about it it's just that you you might doubt whether that can actually be like is there how can we conceive of that Um, Well, you know, here's another one. A friend of mine was going to use this in a debate, and I don't want to mention the friend's name in case he doesn't want to be associated with this because he didn't use it. So maybe he doesn't like it for some reason. But this is not me giving you an actual analogy for the whole Trinity. This is only me giving you an explanation or a way of thinking about one of the ideas used in the Trinity that I think will make it more digestible to you. So heresy hunters out there who want to Christians, who want to accuse me of heresy. I'm not doing that. Okay. I'm just giving people a way to think about something like this. So um, if you've ever seen the back to the future movies, you know, that one of the, the villain in all the movies is Biff Tannen, who's the bully for our, our uh, Marty McFly, our, our central character. And um, he in back to the future too, when they go to the distant future of 2015, where there are flying hoverboards and all kinds of other things that we were let down about when we got to 2015 and found out they don't exist. Um, We, the old Biff Tannen, as he's now old in, in 2015 actually gets into the, the DeLorean and goes back to, what is it? 1985, I think. And he speaks to his former self. They're sitting in a car together and they're having a conversation. All right. Now this is not the Trinity, but what it kind of is interesting about it is, even if you don't believe in time travel, just the sheer, uh, and you know, illustration of this kind of helps. You've got two different persons here. You've got old biftanin and young biftanin, but they're the same being, biftanin. You just have two instances that are two different persons at this point, you know. But they share one being. They're both biftanin, the the being that we call biftanin. So um, you know, that that's just a maybe that'll help with thinking about it. But the, the idea is, there's nothing incoherent about the Trinity. If you understand the Trinity correctly, but there are a lot of people who say things like, well, it's one person and three persons or one God and three gods. And those would be contradictions. Those would be incoherent. But one God, and three persons is not contradictory. Now, he lastly says that he doesn't think we can control what we believe. Now, I don't actually think that that's. Entirely true. Now um, I've some of you have heard me say this a lot, but there is what we could call direct doxastic volunteerism where I could just choose to believe there's uh, you know a flying yellow dragon behind me in the scene, even though I can look and I don't I don't see it. Um, I, the idea that I could just choose to believe that and deliver to myself on that, um, doesn't work now. Actually, if you want to get really specific, I could choose to believe it. I just couldn't deliver on that choice to believe um, on that. But but just choosing to believe something and then making yourself believe it all at once uh, is direct doxastic voluntarism. And yes, I agree that doesn't that's that's not really something that's that's feasible. But indirect doxastic voluntarism is very much possible, and that's where you say okay. I'm gonna open myself up to um, this possibility in in a in a grander way than I have before. I'm gonna immerse myself in the literature that's meant to show that it's true and I, and by putting yourself in a position where the belief would arise arise naturally, you chose to believe indirectly. and uh, uh, the, the the great analogy for this that I heard from Tim Stratton is imagine a man marries a woman who's already got a son and he wants to. Uh, he, choo- he wants to love that kid, but he can't just make himself suddenly have all these feelings of love for the kid. But what he can do is choose to take that kid out to the movies or to go to a ball game or to have experiences that are meaningful with that kid. And, and over time, that, that, that feeling of love arises naturally. But did he choose to have those feelings? Yes. He couldn't do it directly, but he did do it indirectly by putting himself in situations where that would arise. And you can do the same thing with, with beliefs. Um, so I, I agree in a sense that you can't do it directly that way, but you can do it indirectly. And I think that's important. All right. We move now to Flatulent Dragon, a very nice individual who has been very hospitable in responses to me. And I really appreciate that. Um, and so let's see what Flatulent Dragon has to say.
4: I honestly don't. No. And there's a twofold problem here. First, whatever evidence you could come up with would have to essentially
0: upend everything else that we know about reality. Okay, first of all, is that true? If we could provide evidence that a God exists or that Christianity is true, and I believe we do, does that upend everything we know about the nature of reality? I I don't see how if the Christian God exists, that doesn't mean that gravity is not a thing. It doesn't mean that our solar system doesn't operate the way that we think it does. It doesn't mean that, um, that, uh, you know, your relationship with your wife or your significant other isn't real all of a sudden. It doesn't mean that your friends aren't your friends. It doesn't mean that uh, what we call fundamental particles aren't fundamental fundamental particles. It doesn't change anything except you have better explanations for all those things, is my opinion. Um, you, I mean, you have now a rational cosmos because there's a rational mind that stands behind the cosmos. Your relationship with your spouse can be even more meaningful because there was a designer who, who and, these, and that individual and you yourself, have intrinsic value on a higher level that you intuit, and now you have a greater explanation for it because you're made in the image of God. Um, so it, it it informs a whole lot of it makes better, better sense out of your morality it it makes sense of your intuition that you have free will there's all kinds of things that would be informed by this uh, but it wouldn't change them in the sense that I think he means that it would change them uh, scientists carry on doing science uh, astronauts carry on uh, doing space travel I mean I, I just don't don't understand why it would change everything we understand about the nature of reality except in the grand fundamental sense that We could appreciate it in a different way or would have um, more explanations at our disposal than we have on methodological naturalism or metaphysical naturalism. So I I don't know about that. I'm not sure what was meant by that, but maybe he can um, give me an explanation.
4: And that's a big ask. Um, Second, we would need some way to be able to differentiate, for example, a miraculous event from advanced technology or delusion or trickery or something like that. And I just don't know off the top of my head what mechanism you would have that would do that. And that is, that analytic tool needs to be there in place before we can even begin to examine.
0: Yeah, so, um, okay, Uh, the thing that I want to point out here is how how could we tell the difference between trickery and uh, some advanced technology kind of thing, like maybe aliens did it or something like that, versus, no, no, it's a legitimate, miraculous event. It's, it's from God and all those kind of things. Well, um, again, let's go back to the Cartesian certainty point. We might not be able to, with particular instances, prove with Cartesian certainty that a particular event was from God instead of from an advanced civilization of aliens or something or trickery. Uh, But this is where I really do take it. And that could actually let's hold on. Let me let me give this the full fairness that it deserves. There are some things that have been done in the name of God or done by religious figures that were trickery used to rip people off or to convince people of something or whatever. So yeah, that that level of skepticism, some kind of skepticism about these kind of claims is important, and I have that. Uh, I don't just believe every miracle claim I hear. But here's the thing. On the other hand, if you have something that is really epic, like again, back to the Um, Mike Lycona and Matt Dillahunty debate, uh, Mike asked Matt about what if suddenly there was a comet that collided with the moon and suddenly in Hebrew and Greek, it said God exists or something. Um, And then go back to the uh, Matt Slick example of somebody parted an ocean in Jesus name, something on that level, something really miraculous or a resurrection of the dead or something like that, Jesus resurrection Um, or somebody, even some of the medical miracles that we hear about today with things like that. Um, I think that this gets into a little bit of what I call pinhole thinking that I made a whole video on this and it was responding to uh, T. jump, I think. Um, And, uh, but, but this, when you have a good argument, when you have an argument like the Kalam, or you have an argument, like a good design, teleological argument or something like that. um, You know, if, if the, if, if someone looks at that and says, okay, yeah, I see how you get to God from that. Not that I'm saying that's what flatulent dragon thinks, but many people will say like, I see how you get there. But technically, it might be possible that X. So, for instance, let's go back to one of the previous uh, people. I think it was the due diligence, although I could be wrong. could have been vagrant Sam. But but one of them, I think it was due diligence, said, uh, well, if you showed me that Jesus was raised, that doesn't prove to me that God did it. Okay, if a man thinks of himself as God's special agent to bring about the kingdom, which is universally accepted by scholars, as if he's walking around during his life saying, just watch my life and see what happens. And then he rises from the dead. Um, Okay, here's where, yeah, you don't have to believe that that means God did it. You could say it's aliens or something like that. But that sort of thing is what I call pinhole thinking. And that's where, like, you're looking for any little pinhole way of wiggling out of the truth of the argument. And that is kind of like looking for something like Cartesian certainty. These things are not meant to uh, give you Cartesian certainty, and I don't think Flatulent Dragon is asking for that, but just for other listeners. If, if someone is is looking for a penalty, the thing what we need to do is look at an argument, look at the evidence that's given, and say, what is the best explanation for this? Even if it's a deductive argument, the, uh, the uh, premises are sometimes defended abductively. So w- really, what what does this argument seem to point to? Because if we're looking for truth, we should be looking for what is likely true on the basis of this argument? What is the best explanation? And, you know, saying something like, well, you know, technically aliens might have done that or something. I just think that's pinhole thinking. And, and I, you know, I don't have a whole lot of time for that. Secondly, um, with something like this, what about advanced technology? What about these sorts of things? Another thing you can add is, well, did this happen in a, religious, a religiously informed theater? So, for instance, the resurrection of Jesus most certainly did uh the you know uh uh, someone parting an ocean in jesus name that's a religiously informed event in jesus name you know someone saying something like that these are these are uh, there are little hints at this is or someone praying for a medical miracle and then a medical miracle seems to happen like fills the pages of craig keener's book and lee strobel's uh shorter more popular level book these these sorts of things are really good we have miracle uh we have, have a couple of videos on miracles on this channel So, if you look at those and say, yeah, oh, yeah, I mean, I see how you get there, and that does seem really powerful, but it could have been aliens or it could have been advanced technology. Okay, but the religious theater in which this is informed, someone just prayed for this person, or a number of people were praying for for this person, um, as is the case in one episode where uh, one issue that's brought up in Keener's work where. Uh, actually, I don't think it was in Keener's work. It was in Strobel's work. Keener told Strobel about it um, because he found it after his book was already released where this woman, her story was told on the radio and the, the radio guy was saying, hey, everyone pray right now for this woman. And suddenly there was an incredible, miraculous healing. You know, the, 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 the theater of that seems to indicate that it's not just an advanced technology. Does it give us absolute certainty that, that it wasn't? No. But but do we need that? Do we have that with anything else? Uh, I think that's an important thing to consider. All right, so let's move on now and let's take a look at the last video that we're going to look at, last clip. And that is of Paul and Shannon Q on Shannon Q's channel. So this one's a little bit different. And remember, we've been hearing from people um, well, I think I may have only played one like this here, uh, but there are a number of responses to my 10 questions that said the Matt Dillahunty thing of, well, I don't know what would convince me, but if there's a God, he would know and he would give it to me and he hasn't given it to me. Uh, so he either doesn't exist or doesn't want me to know that he exists. So let's hear what Paul O'Gia and Shannon Q have to say.
3: Oh, you're going to have to lean in. <laughs> we almost wrecked this place. Guys, this is Paul O'Gia. He and I had a conversation about this earlier. Did I mute myself? Good, I didn't. I'm a nightmare when it comes to sound. So we had a conversation with this earlier and I was going back and forth about this specific question about the ideas that I have surrounding it. And his answer was so good that it's essentially my perspective now as a result of talking it through with him. And I thought it was so good that I felt um, hesitant to present it as my view, uh, because it didn't seem like it would be fair to say, to, to make it seem as though I had an idea like this that was this good independently, and I'll tell you why you think it's really good after I let him. Talk. You can talk now. Hi, this is Paul. <laughs> hey. <great. laughs> uh,
5: so first of all, in case someone else came up with this idea sooner, you know, I'm not taking credit, but this is my thoughts recently. 2020 um, has been a long year, but in this year, I've had conversations with both uh, young Earth creationist Eric Hovind. As well as uh, Sean McDowell, Dr. Sean McDowell, uh expert on the apostle martyrdom. And both of them posed this question to me during our conversations. And both times I gave the Matt Dillahunty answer, which has been my answer for a long, long time. And that answer is I don't know what it would take to convince me, but an all knowing God would know, right. and he hasn't. Yes. So for the longest time, I mean, that is that is a great answer. That's a fantastic answer because that's generally truthful. But it has
3: problems built into it, though, because you're essentially saying, I don't think that personal experience is good evidence, but the only thing that would convince me is personal experience. Right. Yeah, and that, which is uh, what I was caught up on. Which linger, is
5: lingering behind that yeah. for myself, I, and when both Eric and Sean pressed me on this, I got to admit, I kind of went behind the scenes and thought, it's not a great answer. I get why it's not a very great answer because, for a yeah, Christian. Yeah, yeah, It's, it's very, it, it's, it's a cop-out. It is a cop-out. I mean, it's it's truthful. It's a truthful cop-out. So I thought about it more, and I've had time to think, and and it would have to be personal experience because I don't feel like any of the arguments from philosophy mm-hmm. or any of the arguments from the authority of the Bible compelling in the least. None of those things, as they sit, and you know, uh, short of new manuscripts, and I can't even imagine what new manuscript would convince me. So
2: hmm.
5: I thought this through. You know, personal personal experience obviously would be compelling for me, but not necessarily compelling for other people, and that's okay. Personal experience it would have to be. But Sean pressed me on, well, if it was personal experience, Paul, you've said on record that you would wonder if it was a hallucination, and of course you would. Why would you not at least consider that this? Personal experience I had was a hallucination or something. The brains are mysterious things. We don't always know how they work. Mm -hmm. But so the thing that I now feel like I would do if I'm ever in this position, I will ask the person communicating to me personally or the being communicating to me personally to share with me something that I don't know. And ideally something that no one on earth knows. Now, if you Google unsolved math problems, there are dozens and dozens of very famous math problems that often have like $100,000 million prizes to the mathematician who will solve them. And they have, some of them have been lingering around for uh, decades, if not centuries. So what I would ask this being to do, the kind of evidence I'm looking for is a personal experience where this person gives me something like the answer to one of these unsolved math problems that I know I am not good at math, so if they gave it to me, um, I would be there's absolutely no way that me, the only person in the world, got the right answer to this math problem that I probably don't even understand how it's posed. So that is my new answer. I, um, what would absolutely convince me? A personal experience where they're giving me unique information that I know for certain I could never have?
3: Yeah, and here's why I like that so much, because like I said before, I struggled with the saying, because I know, through studying psychology, just how unreliable personal experience can be, right? So, and that's one of the reasons when people give their personal testimony, you're like, yeah, okay, like, that's neat that you had that experience, but there's a million ways you could have misinterpreted that. So if you're if you're saying a personal experience is what could convince me, that's an honest answer. It really is an honest answer, because it likely is what convinces most people, Um of their belief structures. like Just realistically, I think it likely is what convinces most, pe- most people of their belief systems, is a personal experience of some sort. But as an atheist, when you're asked that question, it, it get, that paradigm exists where you're saying, well, it is what would convince me, but I don't think it should be enough to convince you, but it's definitely right. what would convince me. And that seems... Off, But this way, like, because you aren't a mathematician and you aren't thinking about these problems, there that adds a degree of extra verification that doesn't need to be, like Braxton said, um, verifiable or repeatable in science. Right. It's something that isn't verifying the existence of God, but it's verifying the efficacy of that experience. Right.
5: That's the part. part.
3: Right. It's verifying that that personal experience is something that did, in fact, happen and not something that you maybe had like a a, a delusion or maybe you were hallucinating or maybe this was like some sort of lucid dream that you have like blah, blah 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 all the all the reasons to think that it may not be accurate that we would we would cling to and utilize when we're arguing against other people who say that their personal experiences are proof this would be a way to not verify God exists, but verify that you had that experience. Exactly. And I thought that it was super parsimonious because these math problems do exist, and you would never in a million years solve one of them. No <laughs> But God could
5: Too busy drawing cartoons. Oh,
3: I loved it. I loved it so much. So he had no intention of being on the stream, but I made him. So if you if you don't know who Gia is, he's adorable. He has a channel called Gia, And you can go subscribe to that channel. Bye. Now you have to leave. Bye. I'm off. We're all done. Anyway, I'm going to put you back on full screen. And we'll go to the next
0: one. <laughs> okay. So, uh, first of all, thank you for giving an answer. This was a, um, you know, a straightforward and well-thought-out answer of what would convince him. And she agrees. So, I, I, I like that. Um, it wasn't the typical. And it also shows some of the problems with the standard Matt Dillahunty answer that has already been mentioned in this list. Um, and was mentioned by, I don't know, a dozen videos out there responding to my 10 questions. So I really appreciate that. And maybe it'll mean something more than just coming from me because it's coming from uh, one of the atheists in the atheist community on YouTube who is appreciated by a lot of other channels. Um, <clears throat> now, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but because personal experience alone won't cut it, it sounds like Paul is saying either this situation I've described is the only thing that could convince me, and I don't think he's saying that. I think it's more likely he's saying, or something on that level, something similar. And here's something I was able to think of that I think would get the job done. Now, here's the thing, just to borrow from what some other atheists have said here. Now, we're talking about Paul. What would convince Paul? That's what would convince Paul. So if that's what would convince Paul and Shannon, then that's their answer. Okay, But it wouldn't be too hard to think about what some of the other atheists have said, and say okay well how do i know it's not an advanced technology like flatulent dragon said what about how do i know it's not aliens they could do this because uh, certainly aliens could give you a bizarre experience in which they give you the solution to some math problem Um, uh, That that would do something like that. And of course, then the the thing that we often hear about aliens as an explanation is at least that would be something natural. We know that natural beings exist. And so that would at least be more plausible than a god or something. So I I think that while I'm glad that would be, you know, something that Paul and Shannon would accept. I don't know that that's something that many other atheists would accept because they could always say, well, yeah, but aliens or something or some sufficiently advanced technology could still uh, produce something like that for all I know, you know, who knows that could, that could do it, but they gave us an answer. But now let's consider their answer Um, that their, their answer is, here's what would do it. Something like this. I have an experience, a personal religious, or at least apparently religious experience In which I'm given the answer to something like a mathematical problem that no one has an answer to yet and and that I couldn't solve on my own. Now, that that sounds good. But notice how specific that is. In considering all of these questions, on the one hand, we have answers that are still ambiguous, not his, the ones that I don't know what would convince me that are still ambiguous, meaning that atheists can still just say, no, no, I'm not convinced. I'm not convinced by that. And we don't, they're in that safe space where, yeah, we're not asking for a Cartesian certainty, but we need a demonstration and there's this safe space, whether that's intended or not, where I can always just say, I'm not convinced you've got those kind of ambiguous answers. Uh, We have one answer that actually does give us a clear explanation of what it would take, but it is so specific and so personal that it certainly surpasses any sort of evidence uh, fathomable that a Christian can make. Now, I take all these people to be very—I think these people in this video are being honest. I think they mean what they are saying. I don't think they're trying to construct something to get out of something. But it certainly does look like, though we often hear from people— Oh, by the way, the deist um, in this video, Mr. Brass, is the only one who said, Well, I'd like to touch Jesus' scars— But if someone could just make sense out of the Trinity for me, Christianity, I'd consider Christianity. I mean, that's actually something that we could, you know, we could have a conversation about something like that. Um, And I realized that, yeah, okay, the the experience, the very specific experience that Paul gives. Yes, God could do something like that for him. Yes, that's certainly true. But that doesn't mean that that's the way God wants to interact. Uh, One of the typical answers to the divine hiddenness question in general is to say, Look, God uh, would be aware of all the ways he could create and what would happen in all of those possible worlds. And he chose to actualize, the Christian might posit as a defeater to the divine hiddenness claim, uh, it, it may well be that God chose to actualize the world where he knew that the most people would freely choose him. It may well be that in a world where God is uh, more obviously uh, more obvious than he already is, Uh, walking around, you know, uh, telling people about himself. We believe that he did that in Jesus and he was crucified. You know, people get upset with any particular political figure and marginalize, make videos making fun of them and don't believe in them and reject them all the time. Why would we think that they wouldn't do that with God if God was a constant reality and so not choose to worship and accept him? It's not mental assent that God is looking for. God's not just looking for people to believe that he exists in terms of an intellectual exercise. Um, we, you know, the Bible talks about the fact that demons, even if you don't believe in demons, the Bible, you know, kind of considers this and says that even the demons believe. and 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 But that doesn't mean they are believing on Christ in terms of placing their faith and their worship and bending the knee and trusting in him. So as a simple defeater to the divine hiddenness argument, you just say, look, the reason God doesn't give those kinds of interventions like that may well be because, number one, that would only present mental assent to the truth and existence of God. It would not guarantee that there was or even necessarily increase the odds that Paul Ogier would worship that God. Many atheists—I don't know Paul Ogier's persuasion on this—many atheists say that they still wouldn't worship even if they were uh, convinced that God exists. So God, uh, as a defeater to the, to the divine hiddenness, God may have actualized a world in which he knew that the way he reveals himself and the amount of evidence that he gives results in the greatest number of people freely choosing to follow him. That's, that's a perfectly acceptable uh, explanation, I think. But what I want people to see is here is we have ambiguous answers, and then we have this very specific and very personal answer from Paul. Both of those put, create an interesting scenario, so, uh, the number one, with the divine hiddenness issue, again, uh, God appearing on the White House lawn wouldn't do it for these people, necessarily. God appearing every two years in Jerusalem and healing some people, because maybe that's aliens, right? We heard that. Maybe it's an advanced technology that we don't understand. A personal experience, except for the one that Paul describes, won't do it for people, because uh, that could be a hallucination, Right? So we have this very specific and creative idea, but that may well not be the way that God chooses to interact, which means for the divine hiddenness claim, it becomes very specific. It becomes, if God exists, he would reveal himself to us in the way Paul says, for everyone on earth, if he doesn't want to remain hidden. And that seems uh, that seems odd to me. What, it, what we come down to is, and I've said this so many times, is that even though we often hear from, Atheists. Look, you Christians have had to move further and further back in the corner as science has explained more and more religious stuff away. I don't see that at all. What I see is instead, as more and more reason to believe comes in about cosmology, about um Uh, You know the historical stuff related to the resurrection. As we look at um, the neuroscience that we have, and quantum mechanics, and all these kind of things, as more stuff comes along, what happens is cases are being made for God that are making the are leading to the the secularist or the atheist having to raise the bar of skepticism higher and higher and higher to the point where it's either it's somewhere in here, but I don't know where it is, and don't ask me to put a pin on it. And whether it's intentional or not, you can always just say well, that doesn't convince me, or it's so specific that, you know, that that's something that only God could do directly for you. And the apologists that you're dialoguing with aren't going to be able to provide you an experience like that. So it seems to me that whether it's intentional or not, it does avoid a lot of the evidence that we actually think we have. And that's fine. If you're not convinced, you're not convinced. But I just want to point out that number one, for the divine hiddenness stuff, um, it, it takes away a lot of the. Uh, it makes that that whole thing of divine hiddenness seem a little bit hollow, because most of the ways that people presenting that argument in the academic level are thinking of that God could reveal Himself, you wouldn't believe that anyway, because it's aliens or it's personal and could be a hallucination. And so, uh, so I think that's number one. It, it does it does damage to the case atheists I think are trying to make with a divine hiddenness argument. And number two, I think it shows how high the bar of skepticism has had to be raised. So, um, but I appreciate it. And I will think more about some of these answers, particularly the one that uh, Paula Gia and Shannon Q presented because it is interesting and creative. And I'll be thinking about it as we end this video. I hope you've enjoyed this. If you'd like to support what we do here in responding to Atheists primarily on YouTube and on podcast, you can do that by visiting us at Um, patreon.com slash trinity radio Um, and with that i'll see you next time on trinity radio